invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to read the first five, the first six verses, focusing on the first five of Galatians chapter 3. Just one other praise item I was going to announce before the offering, but October was, um, the Lord blessed us with great generosity, and we, uh, we not only met budget for the first time uh, this year, but succeeded uh, um, by... $15,000, I believe. So it's a very strong month. And uh, look at how the Lord has blessed us uh, through this crazy year. Uh, um, he's blessed us so abundantly. And let's continue to give <coughs> generously as we close out this year and look forward to a new year of ministry. The elders are working on the budget right now. We're excited about what God has for us in 2021. Uh, we're delighted with how he's blessed us uh, this year already. But let's continue to uh, enthusiastically participate in the work of the Lord uh, in the gospel ministry. Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to begin in verse 1. This is God's word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let's ask the Lord to bless. God in heaven, uh, Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that um, this morning we can rejoice in it again. Help us to hear these words and to believe them. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up in a family where uh, theology was a regular and sometimes heated topic of debate. Uh, and particularly, uh, I saw that happening between dad and my brothers. Um, dad and his brothers, sorry. Um, dad got along famously with his brothers. They worked very closely together. Uh, they loved each other. They, um, they were very close. However, um, my dad was Christian Reformed, and my Uncle Herm was Protestant Reformed, and my Uncle John was Netherlands Reformed, and then we had some Christian Reformation thrown in uh, with the in-laws. And so there was uh, plenty of material for uh, heated discussion. And, uh, and, and I saw that happening. Tempers could flare as we talked about grace. The, um, <clears throat> and while sometimes lines were crossed, I remember uh, Dad um, strongly inviting my uncle to leave the premises. At the same time, um, I grew up, they didn't fight over anything other than theology. Um, what that communicated to me as a child was that Theology really matters. It's really, really important what the Bible says. And um, Paul's letter to the Galatians stands then for the proposition that passion and frustration and even godly anger is warranted when it comes to differences or uh, disagreements about the gospel. Uh, the opening line of chapter 3 reveals a righteously indignant apostle. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, one translator, J.B. Phillips, uh, translates this verse this way. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you cannot be so idiotic. Uh, that's very strong language. It's not a bad translation. Uh, and it is exactly true 
when it comes to the Galatian Christians. They are being idiotic. They're not thinking clearly. Uh, it's like they're in a fog. Uh, some sort of spiritual disease that has blinded their sense to the truth of the gospel. And Paul speaks strongly because when you're confused about the gospel, that sort of folly is deadly. It's, it's, it's spiritual suicide. These things, these things really matter. They're issues of ultimate life and death. Remember a few years ago, uh, John MacArthur spoke at the funeral of R.C. Sproul, the great theologian of our time, and he told of a meeting that uh, had happened a few years prior between six men, uh, MacArthur and R.C., uh, James Kennedy, Bill Bright, Charles Colson, and G.I. Packer. Uh, these men knew each other well. Many of them were very close friends. And they had, uh, they had uh, come together because an issue had divided them. There was a document, I believe this was back in the 90s, uh, called Together for the Gospel, inspired by Charles Colson and G.I. Packer. And the, and the document Together for the Gospel was an attempt to bring together um, what the Reformation had divided, to bring together the Reformed Evangelical Church and the Roman Catholic Church on the issue of justification. R.C.'s great concern was that it attempted to do this by undermining the biblical doctrine of justification. And so they met in a room together, and uh, MacArthur just uh, was deeply disappointed that his friends, uh, I mean, Sproul was deeply disappointed that his friends, Colson and, um, and Packer particularly, were spearheading this thing. And MacArthur recounts that in the course of the meeting, R.C. Sproul literally got up on the table and pointed his fingers at his friends, said, I don't think you get it. This is whether you're saved or not. And MacArthur just uh, said in his eulogy that R.C. stood for the gospel and defended the faith even when he was looking in the eyes of a cherished friend. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing in Galatians. Uh, Paul looked straight into the eyes of the apostle Peter and rebuked him. Because Peter was not living in line with the gospel and was leading other people astray when it comes to the gospel. And now uh, Paul uh, does the same thing uh, via letter to the churches of Galatia. They aren't, they aren't getting it. They do not realize the severity of their error. This is about whether you're saved or not saved. You see... Um, well, the next two and a half chapters, we're going to see Paul making a case, particularly using Abraham, making a case that uh, argues against the false teaching of the Judaizers. Remember, the Judaizers have come from Jerusalem. They are Jewish Christians who believe that uh, salvation does not come by by faith alone and grace alone and, and Jesus alone, but salvation comes by Jesus plus Moses. Um, believing in Jesus and then, and then doing the works of the law and submitting to the Mosaic law. So it happens by grace and law, faith and works, Jesus and Moses. And, uh, and Paul is going to go on an extended discussion exposing the fallacy of that and the foolishness of that and we're going to begin uh, this morning then by just looking first at the nature of the folly and then Paul's first argument, which will be an argument from their own experience. So the first, the nature of the folly, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? We don't want to run by that comment. It might seem like an offhand, something that, that doesn't contain much for us, but it is a, a spirit-inspired comment and a spiritually insightful comment. 
Paul is revealing both the severity of their error and the source of it. So when he, uh, when he speaks to them this way, who has bewitched you? He's calling them to think about it. Now we might say, well, Paul, it's obvious who has bewitched them. The Judaizers uh, bewitched them. The Judaizers have been um, misleading them, teaching them false theology. And that's true. But Paul, when he asks this, who has bewitched you, the who is singular, Paul thinks and believes that there is a someone at work behind the Judaizers, that this, uh, this false teaching does not just have Jewish origins, it has demonic origins. Um, that these, uh, Judaizers, they, these Galatian Christians have therefore not just stumbled into this heresy, they've been seduced into it. They've been bewitched. It's like a, a spell has been cast over them. Now, that's not hard for us to understand. We, uh, I, I would imagine if you're a Christian, you've, you've had this experience in your own life. right? Have you, have you ever been tempted to do some just awful, egregious, horrible sin? And for a moment it looked... It looked really good to you? Or have you fallen into egregious sin? Sin that you had vowed you were never going to, to participate in ever or you were never going to do again. And, and, and later you ask yourself, well, what in the world was I thinking? How could I have been so stupid? It's like I was in a spiritual stupor. Well, yeah, that's, that's what the devil does. Maybe you have a loved one who's walked away from the faith and you, and you cannot figure it out. It's like they're in a spiritual coma. They're, they're not thinking clearly. Their, their, their actions and their decisions make no sense. And you try to reason with them. You try to use art logic. And maybe you, you try to bring scripture. But it, it just doesn't break through. It doesn't get in. Rational, biblical, logical arguments don't work. It seems like there's a fog. That's what the devil does. And that's what Paul sees happening here in the church. The devil is behind theological error as, right, of this sort as much as is behind moral failure. But Paul, secondly, shows not just the source of the error, but the severity of it. You see, there are issues in the, that, uh, in the Christian life over which, you know, Brothers and sisters who are well-meaning and committed to Jesus can disagree on. Um, so in Romans 14, you see examples of that where uh, some people believe that it's okay to eat meat uh, sacrificed to idols. Other people believe, no, that's not okay at all. And, and some are observing the Sabbath days, the holy days of the Jewish calendar, and others are not. And Paul says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Just don't judge each other. People of, uh, in good conscience can hold to either position. Uh, contemporary examples would be maybe things like, like baptism or church polity, views on the millennial period. <coughs> right? um, those are issues that we can cordially debate and respectfully differ. This is not one of those issues. When it comes to the nature of justification, how a sinner is made right before God... That's the core of the gospel, and two people cannot truly disagree on this and both be Christian, no matter how moral their life might be. Why not? Why can't people disagree on this? Well, because it goes directly to the cross itself. 
Which is why Paul immediately goes to the cross. And he says to them, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The, the word portrayed it can also be translated a placarded or it's, it's sort of like posting a big uh, public notice like a billboard. And it really provides a concise summary of Paul's ministry. If, if you were you know, sitting next to the Apostle Paul on an airplane and you say, well, what do you do for a living? Uh, Paul would say, what, what I do is I publicly placard the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In every town I visit, I raise a giant billboard proclaiming the Son of God nailed to a Roman cross for the salvation of sinners. That's what I do. This is the core of Paul's message. This is what he has to say. We preach Christ crucified. It's what he does. And he recognizes it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. But to those who are called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that's his message. That's the Jesus that Paul preaches. A crucified Christ. And he tells them, reminds the Galatians, this happened in your midst. I billboarded the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It, through Paul's preaching of the gospel, it's as if these believers had been transported to Calvary. They saw it with their own eyes. They saw Jesus, the very Son of God, hanging naked and cursed on the cross, bearing their sin and pardoning their guilt robing them in his righteousness, reconciling them to God. They saw it happen. It had, it had been unfolded right before their eyes, and they had believed it. And now they were abandoning it. The Judaizers were not just, you see, adding something to the gospel. By adding something to the gospel, they were subtracting from the core of the gospel. The nature of Christ's work on the cross. And so Paul, um, he's already argued this in chapter 2, um, to say that a sinner can be made right with God on the basis of their own obedience to the law, to the slightest degree, is to say that in some way Jesus has died in vain. That's how Paul ended chapter 2. If righteousness were through the law, if you could actually be declared righteous through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So if, if the law of Moses is actually able to make you righteous, uh, what in the world is Jesus doing on the cross? See, this is Paul's grief when he looks at the, 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 uh, the Jewish people in general. Romans chapter 9 and 10, he talks about this, that his heart is just so burdened. Because they, they have a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. And it, uh, because in, in, in seeking to uh, establish a righteousness of their own through the works of the law, they are opposing and denying the righteousness that God gives, the righteousness that comes by faith. So if righteousness can come through the law, as the Judaizers were teaching, why is Jesus on the cross? Why didn't he just keep preaching the Sermon on the Mount? And let that be his ministry. Let that be his, his, his gift to the world. And the answer is because the Sermon on the Mount can't wash away sin. It can't pardon guilt. It can't robe a sinner in righteousness. It can't rescue you from this present evil age or your own wicked flesh. It cannot protect you on the, uh, the day of judgment. 
A moral teaching cannot redeem a soul from death. Only an atoning sacrifice can do this. And that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Jesus' message. And Paul picks that up. This crucified Christ. And he uses the the perfect tense, which signifies not only that this is something that happened in the past, but it's something that happened in the past with dynamic relevance and power and implications for the present. So when he preaches Christ crucified, he's not just saying, look, that happened. He's saying, look, that happened. And that means that you, the sinner, today can enter into eternal life, having all of your sins washed away. Because that happened, salvation is possible for you today. That's the message that Paul preached. And the single requirement, the the, the thing that that, that brings that salvation into your life as a reality that washes away your sin and makes you right with God, the thing that makes that happen is faith. Faith. The single key to experiencing the power of the cross in your soul, in your life, is faith. Not only at the beginning, but all the way through. I love how John Stott uh, puts it. He says, this then is the gospel. It is not a general instruction about the Jesus of history, but a specific proclamation of Jesus Christ as crucified. It proclaims that sinners may be justified before God and by God, not because of any works of their own, but because of the atoning work of Christ. Not because of anything that they have done or could do, but because of what Christ did once when he died. The gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. It is not an invitation to us to do anything, but a declaration to us of what God has done. That's the gospel. And that gospel, uh, in all of its beauty and its glory and its, its righteousness and its joy and its peace, that's the gospel the Galatians are abandoning by going back to the Mosaic Law. And that's why Paul uses the word foolish. How incredibly foolish. And then he goes to argue from their experience. Let me ask you this. Just this one question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Is that how it works? He's arguing from their own experience of conversion. Paul had been there. He had preached to them. He had seen that happen. Uh, He had preached the gospel to them, and they had heard it, and they believed it, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit so that they experienced a deep sorrow for sin and an ability to, to, to lay hold of Christ in faith, and they experienced the love and the joy and the peace that comes from it. They had experienced the reality of the Holy Spirit poured out on them, God himself dwelling within them. And Paul says, now how did that happen? Did it happen because you worked really hard and you managed to attain a certain level of moral perfection, not not ultimate perfection, but you managed to clean up your act to this certain level and then God says, well, thank you very much and, and as a reward for your efforts, here's the Holy Spirit. Is that how it happened? There's lots of people in the, uh, in the general Christian world that think that's exactly how it happens. God helps those who help themselves. So if you would just get serious about things and, and if you would uh, uh, clean up your act, 
then you'll, you can expect blessings from the Lord. Well, that's not how it happens. That's not how it happened in Galatia. It's not even close to what happened in Galatia. In Galatia, you had these, uh, these people coming like the weeping prostitute at the feet of Jesus. Covered in guilt and shame and sin, but, but weeping because she was able to sense that in Jesus there was forgiveness even for someone like her. Uh, it happened like the, like the pagan Philippian jailer who knew that uh, his life was forfeit because of his sins and is, is pleading, how can I be saved? That's how it happens when people come with all their wickedness and all their, 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 their need, all their guilt, all their shame. And they come and they believe the gospel message preached. And that's where the experience of the Holy Spirit happens. He's already been at work, but the experience of receiving the Spirit happens, you see, as a gift, not a wage. By hearing, not by doing. Martin Luther uh, said that the saving instrument of a Christian is not your hands, it's your ears. It's a saving organ in a sense, because with your ears, you hear the gospel. You, you, you hear God's promise to you, the sinner in Jesus Christ, and hearing and believing you're saved. And so that being the case, Paul now presses it home. How are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the, and the foolishness, you see, of their, of their action is best understood when you just realize this vast chasm uh, that is between these two terms, spirit and flesh. The spirit is the second person of the Holy Trinity. God himself, in all his sovereign, omnipotent grace and power. That's the spirit. The flesh is fallen human nature with all the consequent corruption and weakness and fundamental inability. These things are polar opposites. And so when Paul says, so you began with almighty, sovereign, omnipotent grace and power, and now you're going to go ahead with your paltry, corrupt efforts? I mean, how foolish can you be? The, the, the flesh is no help. Jesus says this in John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Not only is the flesh incapable of producing a Christian life, it is a, it's opposed to the Christian life. Paul will get to that in chapter 5, 17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. They're not allies, not working in the same direction. Galatians 6, 8, the one who sows to the flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. And so that's why Paul says, how foolish can you be? Having begun by the sovereign, omnipotent grace and power of God, now you're going to try to do it in your own feeble, God-opposing, corruption-reaping efforts? Why would you do that? There's a, uh, a, a humorous commercial on uh, running on TV right now, um, Geico ad. Uh, right, uh, maybe you've seen, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. 
It's just what you do, is what the guy says. And, and, and the, the context is that you see a, a group of terrified young adults standing. It's at nighttime and it's raining. And uh, obviously someone is after them. And they're standing in front of this haunted-looking house. And frantically, one, uh, they're looking for a place to hide. One of the girls says, let's go hide in the attic. And another says, no, let's go in the basement. And, and another pleads, why don't we just get in the running car? And you, and you turn around in the shot, and there's this beautiful red uh, car. The engine's on, uh, the lights are on, the doors are open. It's the perfect getaway vehicle, right there. And another young man says, are you crazy? Let's hide in the garage behind the chainsaws. <clears throat> and there's, there's a wall of chainsaws, right? And then, and then the shot goes away, and you see the mass murderer standing behind the chainsaws with his own in his hand, and he just has this weary disbelief all over his face. He cannot believe how stupid people could be. And, and, and the ad, right, um, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. It's just what you do. Well, trying to live the Christian life by the flesh is just as silly as running to the chainsaws for protection. With the, with the very same predictable results. If you go to the law to make yourself better, the law is going to eat you for lunch. Um, is the law a gift of God? Yeah, it is. Does the law show us the way? Yes, it does. Does the law have any power to help you live that way? No, it doesn't. It does not. And the Galatian believers, you see, by running to the law, are running into the arms of the enemy in that sense. They're just running to the flesh, what the flesh could accomplish, what the flesh could do, and it will kill them. Christians facing the threat of besetting sin often make bad decisions. In our attempt to grow in holiness, we tend to follow our own foolish instincts, lean on our own incapable resources, trust in our own paltry efforts, and we'll run to the law looking for help. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Read my Bible more, got it. Pray more, done. Try harder, I promise. In fact, I promise I'll never do that again. I swear it. And we mean it. And we hope that our renewed vows and our earnest efforts will be able to move us into Christ's likeness. But they won't. They can't. Your will, your efforts, your flesh cannot make you like Jesus. Only Jesus can make you like Jesus. And that is exactly why the Holy Spirit was given. How does God do His work in the believer's life? Look at verse 5. Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? God does His saving, sanctifying, justifying work in a believer's life not by works of the law, but by hearing the gospel and receiving it with faith. You see, this is the law-gospel distinction. The law makes demands and bids you to obey. And they're all good demands, and it's a good, it's a good bidding. The law makes demands and bids you to obey. The gospel makes promises and bids you to believe. You see, what God promises in the gospel is all that Jesus Christ has accomplished for you, and, and He promises in the gospel the Holy Spirit the Spirit that unites you to Jesus Christ. The Spirit that shows you Jesus Christ. The Spirit that, that leads you to commune with Christ and to abide with Christ. The, the Spirit that's able to actually change your heart, transform your desires. 
so that you have a new mind and a new heart. And, and uh, as you believe then in the gospel and all that Jesus is for you by the work of the Holy Spirit, you lay hold on him by the power of the Spirit and you, you, you embrace all that he's promised to you and all that you are in him. That's the Christian life as Jesus by his Spirit makes you like Christ. Remember what Paul says. The life I live in the flesh, in the, in, the, in the presence of corruption, in the presence of weakness, in the presence of inability, the life I live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to continue on in the flesh? No. It's foolish. Having begun in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Having begun in the Spirit, let's walk in the Spirit. Let's talk about the Spirit. Let's pray for the fruit of the Spirit and the presence and the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit that's actually been given to the church, given to you. And you, and you walk by the Spirit by faith. Friend, how are you living your life in the flesh? Is your Christian life sort of the thing that you're doing to try offset the flesh? You're, you're trying to be good so that the bad maybe gets outweighed? Or, are, you living the, are, you, are you trying to obey the laws and the rules and the, and the, the um, expectations, hoping that that's enough? That's just living by law. Are you living your life in the flesh by works or by hearing? Is your Christian life defined by trying, 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 or by trusting, trusting, trusting? Are you weary or encouraged? And you can be both, I understand that. But, but what defines your life? Tiredness, weariness, sense of failure? I would suggest if that's what defines your spiritual life, you're getting beaten up by the law. If your life is, is defined more and more by expectation, by humility, by love for Jesus, by sensing your need for Christ, by wanting to abide in Christ, that's walking by the Spirit. And as you walk, Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. The battle for holiness is not ultimately a battle for holiness. The battle for holiness is a battle for Christ, to know Jesus Christ, to walk with Jesus Christ, and by the power of Jesus Christ, be made a brand new person. And that's a work that Jesus himself promises that he will carry out and he will complete as you live by faith. Let's break <clears throat> that God gives us that strength, that power, that path. God in heaven, such simple truth, such necessary truth. Lord, many of us are just weary because the flesh is, is beating up on us and, and we've tried the law We've tried to make promises. We've, we've tried different practices. But Lord Jesus, um, so often we've not tried believing, trusting, resting with all of our guilt and all of our weakness, all of our shame, just resting in the gospel. And believing, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit is able to do what we cannot do in our own strength. Lord, forgive us for our foolishness, for our, how often we run to the law. 
looking for assurance, looking for growth, when we should be running to Jesus and looking to Him and hearing His gospel and experiencing His Spirit as we hear in faith. And so, Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be a community that's more and more formed by faith. Not just faith in a, a trust in theological or an understanding of theological truths, but, but faith that, that clearly, confidently lays hold of Jesus Christ. A faith, Lord, that makes um, it us able to believe that even our grossest and vilest sins are forgiven and washed away. A faith that, that makes us able to believe that no matter how hard life might be right now, it's, it's ultimately for the glory of God and for our good as we live in faith. And a faith, Lord, that, that, that strengthens and moves us to call other people to experience this gift of God in Jesus. So uh, it's a faith, Lord, that, that is by the Spirit's power transforming us and making us care about others in a new way. With fresh humility and fresh courage, fresh joy, true peace, as we, as we walk by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us and promises to be with us until we see him face to face. May that day come soon. Amen. We're going to conclude by singing a hymn about faith. Let's stand together and sing.